Hello, welcome to episode 12 in the CMS Pensions Lawcast series. Today, we'll be looking at the investigatory powers of the pensions regulator. I'm Jennifer Bell, and I'm joined by my colleagues Richard Gibson and Simon Evans. I'll be giving you a brief introduction to TPR's existing powers to investigate. Richard will then look at the changes to these powers that we expect to be introduced by the Pension Schemes Bill. And Simon will then be looking at how these powers are operated in practice, some new developments and some top tips. Information gathering is key to TPR to enable it to exercise its statutory functions. The powers we're looking at today sit alongside other information gathering provisions, such as the whistleblowing and notifiable events regimes, and are an important source of information in circumstances where TPR has concerns about a specific scheme. Before looking at some of the detail of the investigatory powers, it's worth noting that they are distinct from TPR's relationship supervision process. Relationship supervision enables TPR to monitor schemes more closely, then outline its expectations and so prevent problems from developing. Schemes are identified for supervision using a range of criteria, including size, risk and previous interactions with TPR. TPR will request a range of documents relating to the scheme and use these to assess the scheme's risks and strengths. They'll then set out their findings in a supervisory report and ask the scheme to create an action plan to address the recommendations that they've made. It's intended to be a collaborative process. So if we turn now to TPR's investigatory powers, these are more likely to come in play where there is no collaboration. The first power we're going to look at is the so-called Section 72 notice. This is when TPR issues a written notice to require certain categories of person to produce documents or provide any other information. A response by TPR last summer to a Freedom of Information request showed that approximately 1,750 notices had been issued since 2010. Recently, TPR has indicated that it will be using its Section 72 power more going forward in a shift from its current practice of making voluntary requests. Key points to note with this power are that it covers not only the production of existing documents, but also gives TPR an ability to require a person to create new material in response to questions. Section 72 notices can be issued to trustees and managers of both occupational and personal pension schemes, to employers, to professional advisors, and to any other person that TPR thinks may have information that is relevant to the exercise of its functions. So it has a wide reach. The notice will specify that the requested information must be provided in such a manner, at such a place, and within such a period as stated in the notice. TPR may agree to reasonable requests for an extension of time, and the place is often not an issue, as TPR will ask for information to be submitted electronically. TPR also has an express power to require individuals to attend in person at a specified time and place, and provide an explanation of any document or information that's being provided. However, at present, this power only applies in the limited context of automatic enrolment and master trusts. A Section 72 notice can't be resisted on the grounds that the information being requested is confidential, 
but TPR can't use its powers to require disclosure of certain protected items, and this would include documents over which legal privilege is asserted. Individuals also can't be required to provide information or answer questions where they might incriminate themselves or their spouse. So in terms of information given in compulsory responses to questions, this can't be used by TPR for criminal proceedings unless the information given is being relied on by the person who gave it. It's important to note, though, that this principle will not apply to pre-existing documents because they already exist independently of the information request. The second power we're looking at today is TPR's power to appoint an inspector to enter certain premises without a warrant. Residential premises are not covered. This power can be exercised to ensure compliance with a wide range of legal requirements relating to occupational pension schemes, certain personal pension schemes, and also compliance by employers with their obligations in relation to auto-enrolment. The inspector must have reasonable grounds to believe that relevant documents are being held at the premises, that members of the scheme work there, or that administration is being carried out at that address. Whilst at the premises, the inspector can require documents to be produced, take copies of them, require documents to be provided in a form that can be taken away, so for example, downloaded to a USB stick, or take the documents themselves. The inspector can also question anyone present to help find the information being sought. Premises can be entered at any reasonable time, which TPR has stated will be during normal business hours, and TPR will usually give prior notice of at least 48 hours. If the occupants deny entry, there's no statutory power to use force, and TPR would need to either bring criminal proceedings or apply for a warrant. So that leads me to my final point, which is that TPR can also apply to a magistrate to obtain a warrant to enter premises, including residential premises. TPR would need to demonstrate reasonable grounds for believing that one of the circumstances set out in the legislation applies. These would include having reasonable cause to believe that there is information on a premises that's not been provided in response to a previous information request, or that if such a request were made, it would not be provided and may indeed be removed, tampered with or destroyed, or that an actual offence has been committed. If a warrant is obtained, then the inspector is permitted to use reasonable force to enter the premises if necessary. I'll now pass on to Richard, who will be looking at some of the changes planned to these powers. Thanks, Jenny. Just before we look at the changes, it's worth pausing to consider the background and the process which began with the government's white paper in 2018 and its consultation on protecting DB pension schemes. The consultation expressed the view that the system for protecting DB schemes was generally working well, but that further protection was required in particular for the less common but difficult and often high profile problem cases. When the response to the consultation was published last year, information gathering was one of the main areas where changes were deemed necessary alongside the changes to notifiable events, the declaration of intent and anti-avoidance changes. So the enhanced powers which TPR is due to be given therefore form part of a move to enable TPR to be more proactive and to enable redress for members when things do go wrong, 
which in turn requires the regulator to obtain the right information about schemes and their sponsors in a timely manner. And that's a key point to many of these changes. They are designed to allow TPR to move faster in relatively unusual but time critical circumstances. So what are the changes that are planned? Firstly, changes to the Section 72 notice provisions. In the existing requirements, whilst TPR's powers to request information are fairly broad, uh, as Jenny mentioned, its powers to interview are currently limited to cases relating to auto enrolment and master trusts. And that's due to change with a new standalone, standalone interview power by which the regulator may require any of the categories of individual which Jenny mentioned to appear before the regulator to answer questions and provide explanations on one or more matters specified in the notice as long as those matters are relevant to the exercise of any of the regulator's functions. So the grounds for interview are really very wide indeed. And that standalone power will be subject to the same self-incrimination protections as already apply to existing powers. Secondly, on inspection powers, there are two bases for carrying out an inspection of premises. One, where the regulator is checking for compliance with a range of statutory provisions, and the other which is limited to checking for auto-enrolment compliance. And the grounds under that first basis to inspect premises are to be brought up to date to include master trust and collective money purchase legislation, but perhaps more significantly, TPR will be given a specific power to enter for the purposes of investigating whether it has grounds to issue a contribution notice, financial support direction or restoration order. It isn't clear that TPR is able to do that currently because such cases don't naturally fall into the category of compliance with legislation. So this is a step to ensure harmonisation between anti-avoidance uh, and powers of investigation. That's also the reason behind the widening of the types of premises that can be inspected, which will be expanded to include premises where the administration of the business of the scheme employer is carried out or where documents relating to that employer's business are held, but also where documents relevant to a change in the ownership of the scheme employer or of a significant asset of the employer are being kept. So again, these investigation powers are being opened up very deliberately to ensure they are fit for purpose when the regulator needs to consider cases of moral hazard. Moving on to sanctions, because for every requirement, usually there needs to be some form of penalty. Firstly, criminal sanctions. There are broadly three criminal offences for non-compliance with TPR's information gathering powers. Failing to provide information or obstructing an inspector without reasonable cause. If convicted, the person will be liable to an unlimited fine. A person guilty of intentionally and without reasonable excuse, altering, suppressing, concealing or destroying a document which they are required to produce to TPR is liable to an unlimited fine or imprisonment for, up for, a, term, up for a term of up to two years or both. The third offence applies where a person has knowingly misled the regulator or provided false information in connection with these investigation powers. Again, a person convicted of such an offence will be liable to an unlimited fine or imprisonment for a term of up to two years or both. Now, these offences and sanctions remain in place, but new civil sanctions are being added. 
Jenny mentioned there have been a lot of Section 72 notices, and as you would expect, the cases have ranged widely in subject and seriousness. The white paper suggested that sanctions in this area needed to be more flexible and that a penalty regime was appropriate whilst retaining the criminal sanctions for the most serious cases. Therefore, for failure to provide information or for obstructing an inspector or altering, suppressing, concealing, destroying a document, the bill will introduce a fining regime which mirrors the civil sanctions in place for the auto-enrolment and master trust regime. Details will be set out in regulations, but a fixed fine will be capped at £50,000 and an escalating fine may also be payable where non-compliance continues, which could be calculated at up to £10,000 daily. A separate fining regime is introduced for providing false or misleading information to TPR, which enables the regulator to impose a fine of up to £1 million which is the same upper limit for fines for failure to comply with the new notifiable event framework and the declaration of intent requirements. Note that separately, the regulator may impose a fine of up to a million pounds for knowingly or recklessly providing false information to the trustees of the scheme. So in theory, at least, TPR should have considerable powers at its disposal to bring targets into compliance when it's in information gathering mode. I'll now pass over to Simon, who'll look at some further points around investigations, which you may see arising in practice. Thank you, Richard. Along with the extended powers, which will come in under the Pension Schemes Bill, the Pensions Regulator was also recently added to the list of public authorities which can use wiretapping powers to obtain communications data. What is communications data? Well, this is the metadata of communications, which can be described as two kinds. The first known as entity data is the who. This includes data which can identify the user, such as the owner of a telephone line or registration details connected to an email address. The second, known as events data, is the when, where and how. This may include information such as the devices used and the location of a mobile phone. The important point to be aware, though, is that this power does not cover wiretapping the what, the content of communications. It only covers the metadata. TPR may be able to use information requests, which Jenny has discussed, to get a hold of, for example, emails, but then it's using its formal powers and doing so in the open. When can TPR intercept this data? Well, it's restricted to only being able to obtain such data when it's necessary for the purposes of preventing or detecting crime. And what is the practical impact of this? It may be an issue for pension scammers making cold calls, um, but we don't expect that it's likely to have much impact on most pension schemes and their sponsors. The restriction to using it to prevent and detect crime means it won't be part of TPR's armory in normal moral hazard investigations. In practice, when we've had clients subject to investigation in other areas, such as financial services, we rarely hear that there's ever been any wiretapping. So generally, what are some practical tips that you should be aware of? As an overarching point, TPR is different in some ways from some other regulators, such as those covering competition law or financial services, because it may not just be looking at whether to use criminal or civil penalties. The fundamental point behind much of TPR's role is to ensure that schemes are properly funded. Its funding and moral hazard powers to get money into the scheme will always also be in play, even when it's considering penalties. This means that we have to be conscious that the same protections about what 
TPR can do with information won't always apply when it's using its different powers. Our first point is understanding how to deal with difficult requests. TPR's practice with information requests varies. Um, it was reported that there were 123 separate requests made as part of the BHS investigation. In the other direction, we've seen very broad requests along the lines of all documents relevant to the company's pension scheme. TPR will include a deadline in its document request and has the force of a criminal penalty for those who do not comply. There have been cases where people have made various excuses, claiming that documents weren't accessible to them or they were not permitted to share with them, share them with TPR under foreign law, for example. TPR has often given these excuses short shrift and even taken its own advice. The practical approach is to be open with TPR from an early stage, highlight what problems there may be and explain why there will be difficulties. As well as being a better approach to get cooperation from the regulator, it also helps to demonstrate a consistent approach if you ever need to defend against a TPR prosecution. Second, Rich and Jenny have spoken about TPR's interview powers and the protections available. However, it's important to understand that there are gaps in the protections against self-incrimination. In particular, the strict legal protections don't apply where statements are made voluntarily, i.e. where TPR has not used its formal powers. While this also means you can refuse to answer a question, this could just lead to TPR then making a formal request. They also don't stop TPR using the statements against you when seeking to use its moral hazard powers. And when TPR has forced you to answer a question, while it cannot use that statement in criminal or civil penalty cases against the interviewee, it can use it in proceedings against other people or bodies. This shows the importance of preparing for an interview to make sure that you can make accurate statements and also the importance of considering whether a legal advisor should attend the interview with you. Next, many may be concerned about sharing confidential information. On one hand, the fact that you are concerned about confidentiality is not a reason to refuse to disclose information, nor are any contractual duties of confidentiality other than when covered by legal advice privilege. When TPR is using its formal powers, it can compel you to provide documents and answers in interviews. However, there are some protections against wider disclosure by TPR. When information is shared with the regulator as part of it, its performing its functions and it's not publicly available information, then it will be restricted information. There's a general obligation on TPR to keep this restricted information confidential. It's subject to a lot of exceptions, of course, such as sharing information with other regulators, but also notably TPR can share restricted information for the purposes of exercising any of its functions. When concerned about confidentiality specific information, we find it's often worthwhile highlighting when information is covered by other legal obligations, such as data protection, or how any sharing of information, such as with trustees, would impact on the business. TPR does have experience dealing with sensitive commercial information, such as when considering corporate deals for clearance. The last thing to highlight is that TPR can be challenged in some circumstances. Usually compliance is the best approach and doing it voluntarily avoids TPR escalating matters. However, a regulator can also overstep the mark. There is judicial authority that the appropriate process for disputing the substantive jurisdiction is when defending the formal action. However, when it comes to the process of the investigation, the harm can already be done from the disruption caused by TPR's more intrusive powers. There are routes we can consider to can challenge what TPR is doing to stem disruptive investigations at an early stage. And on that note, I'll hand back to Jenny to conclude this broadcast.
Thanks, Simon. And thank you for joining us for the 12th episode in the CMS Pensions Lawcast series. We hope you found it interesting and that you'll join us again for the next episode when we'll be looking at master trusts. Mm -hmm.